Imagine not knowing what your income would be each week. Financial planning would be a nightmare. Almost 90% of Vision's income is free will donations. When supporters commit to monthly giving, it provides greater certainty when budgeting for regular expenses and weighing up new opportunities that arise. Knowing we can rely on regular gifts each month takes some of the guesswork out of operating a faith ministry. Monthly givers who share our mission are called Visionary Extra Mile Partners. And right now, you're invited to join this growing group of faithful supporters. The amount of your tax-deductible monthly gift is completely up to you. What is most important is knowing that you are standing with us to reach Australia for the gospel. Click the banner at vision.org.au or in the Vision app to find out more about becoming a Visionary Extra Mile Partner. It only takes a few minutes, but will have an eternal impact. Vision. 2020, bringing a biblical perspective on life, culture and current events. Weekdays on UCB's Vision Radio Network. Find out more at vision.org.au. Well, Kelvin Crombie, historian, author and documentary maker, he is about to release. In fact, we're on the eve of the premiere release of his new documentary based on his book called Gallipoli, The Road to Jerusalem. And Kelvin is joining us now. Hello, Kelvin. Welcome back to 2020. Thank you, Neil. Good to be with you. Kelvin, I always absolutely love our conversations. And it's not because I've had a huge passion for Australian history, but when you talk about it, it comes to life. And before we start getting into talking some more about uh, your new documentary and based on your book, Gallipoli, The Road to Jerusalem, there are significant things that are happening this very week as we are talking. And I'm talking about the re-election of Benjamin Netanyahu as the Prime Minister uh, in Israel. Uh, Do you have a few thoughts uh, to share on that election result this week? Uh, Well, Neil, as I mentioned to you earlier, I think most of the people in Australia, if they watch the news and read the the papers probably know as much about it, if not more, than myself. Uh, I've been so caught up in completing this documentary in the last few weeks that, um, well, I won't say I forgot there was an election coming up, but it wasn't really in the foremost of my thoughts. However, it's a very significant um, election. Any election in Israel, basically, is significant, uh, as it is in America. Um, probably America is the only other country, I think, where there are elections which indicate a... Uh, have an influence upon the rest of the world. But uh, I reckon that being the Prime Minister of Israel, I think, is the hardest uh, political job in the entire world. I was saying to somebody the other day, you have to be like an octopus, but not an eight-armed octopus, an 800-armed octopus, because uh, Israeli society is just so diverse, and the situations confronting Israel are so diverse, and it is such a small country that one small move one direction or the other can trigger off massive big um, results, basically, or consequences. And you've got, the, in a sense, the existence of that nation at hand, depending upon some of these decisions that can be made. So to be at the helm of that, it's a very, very important task. And I don't think the average person in Australia and elsewhere 
understands the significance of having the right person at the helm in Israel. Well, this is very much connected to what we want to talk to today. And when we talk about uh, Gallipoli, the road to Jerusalem, we're talking about the way that the Anzacs contributed to the eventual uh, liberation of Jerusalem, which led to the formation of the State of Israel and, of course, the reformation of uh, these nations in the Middle East as we know them today. So uh, in talking about Benjamin Netanyahu and your 25-year history or more, Uh, living in Israel and uh, looking at the historical aspects and the connections there for Australia's uh, Anzacs back in those uh, World War I days. It it is significant because here's the guy at the helm who's leading the nation forward from what Australia helped to forge. Well, yes. um, When you get into history, you know, I don't set myself up as an historian by any means. I just happen to be an enthusiast who got a bit over-enthusiastic about the subject matter. Uh, when I was living in Israel, I was a guide at Christchurch inside the old city of Jerusalem for 20 years, and I had to major in uh, European, British and European involvement in the Eastern Mediterranean between 1798, which is the time that Napoleon came into the region, and Napoleon's invasion of 1798 put that region back onto the map, so to speak. It had dropped off the map for hundreds of years, and now it's back on, on the map. And that's when British involvement also began at that stage because the British were very concerned that Napoleon could uh, get his forces over to the Red Sea, go down to India and kick the British out of India. So Britain's interest in that region began at that time. And so my area of um, expertise, so to speak, or interest, the area that I was actually asked to major upon for my work as a guide, because I used to have Israelis coming to me at Christchurch uh, to speak about this subject, um, then went for a 150-year period up until 1948 when the British finally left. But in the meantime, during that 150 years, you had incredible things happening. The entire world, not only did Napoleon come, but then the British came, then the entire world decided to get in the act and came into the eastern Mediterranean. And it was in, within that context that you have the Australian and New Zealand soldiers coming into that region during both world wars. So... Um, That work for me helped me to understand what I would call the bigger picture, to understand why it was that we were there. And I was always one of those people that wasn't so much interested in the the dates and the facts and the figures. I was a bit more interested in what in Dickens' name were we doing there? Why were we there? And was there something positive to come out from it? So that's how I um, got into the situation. And when you get into the history, you see all these interconnecting strands, and I often connect it to or I liken it to a tapestry. You're working away in a tapestry and you sort of don't see the finished product because you're sort of working a bit behind the scenes. And when you turn it over, you see this incredible, beautiful big picture. But behind it, it's just a lot of little tiny loose strands and you're thinking, well, how do they all fit together? But they do fit together. It's amazing. It's, it's almost like it's God's big picture. And even if you don't use the, the, the word God, if you don't bring him into it, you still have to stand back and say, wow, no human being could have done all this. You know, it had to be the workings of God. And one little tiny um, connection between Netanyahu and our storyline, it goes back to some events which took place in 1915. Now, I began to, to research and write on this subject, you know, 20 or so years ago. It's interesting, it's only really now becoming a major factor in Israel. And a lot of it has to do with a particular formation called the Zion Mule Corps. And a particular person, uh, if you're looking at individuals, called Lieutenant 
um, John Patterson. But at the time when the uh, planning was being made for the land assault at Gallipoli, because don't forget there was a naval assault and that failed, that began on the 19th of February, finished in, the, in March and that failed, and then they had to think about a land assault. And as they were beginning to plan for this land assault, there were two Jewish men, one called Zev Jabotinsky and the other called Joseph Trumpledor. Jabotinsky was a, a Russian journalist who happened to be in Egypt, and Trumpledor was one of the 10,000 Jewish refugees thrown out of Palestine by the Turks and ended up in Egypt. So Trumpledor and Jabotinsky conceived this idea, it was really Jabotinsky's idea, but he went to Trumpledor, of forming a Jewish legion that would actually join with the British and help to kick the Turks out of Palestine so the Jewish people could go back and establish their national home. So this all took place in March of, uh, of 1915 in a refugee camp, Jewish refugee camp in Alexandria. And so these guys went to the British commander, Maxwell, and said, listen, we've got a great idea. We want to get all these Jewish refugees to help fight for the liberation of Palestine from the Turks. And the British commander, Maxwell, said, well, we aren't going to Palestine. We're going to a little place called Gallipoli. If you want to join in, jump on board and you can come and join us as a transport unit, not just a transport unit, as a mule transport unit. And Jabotinsky, who had these great ideas of a Jewish legion, sort of said, what? The first Jewish fighting force for the liberation of the land of Israel in 1,700 years? And mules? No way. And he opted out. He didn't join. But Trumpledor did. And Trumpledor made a statement, which was very profound. He basically, he looked at the situation, he looked at the big picture, and he said, right, the only way we're going to um, get back into Palestine is if we kick the Turks out. And if it means going to Gallipoli to start the process, so be it. To Gallipoli we go. All fronts lead to Zion were his sentiments. And so he stayed on and began to put together this idea of a Jewish transport unit for Gallipoli. It was called the Zion Mule Corps. Now, it's a British unit. None of the subjects are basically British. They're all residents of Palestine thrown out, Russian residents and others. They needed the commander. The British needed the commander. And it just so happened that there was a British commander, officer in Cairo at the time, looking for a commission. And he was an Anglo-Irishman called John Patterson. And he was offered the, uh, the command, and it just so happened, you know, little inverted commas, that this man was of evangelical Christian leanings, so that was his background, and like many other British Christians at the time, had an interest in the, um, the Jewish people and the restoration of Israel and so on and so forth. And so he was the one asked to lead this pioneer Jewish force called the Zion Mule Corps. So you have John Patterson, an Anglo-Irish Christian, coming to be the first commander of this totally Jewish force. Uh, none of those had men, apart from Trumpledor, had much military experience. So thus began the modern Israeli army. That's the beginnings, basically. The Zion Mule Corps was regarded as being um, the foundation stone for the subsequent Jewish um, army. Now, I know you like to talk about big picture things here, uh, Kelvin, and uh, and this formation of a Jewish army around this time of the uh, Gallipoli campaign. You're saying there's something deeper in there because the hand of God is at work in the history of the world, and this is the sort of thing that, that illustrate it. Most certainly. I mean, this little tiny group, 500 men, went over as transport, didn't fight 
so much with the Anzacs that was based down to the British and the French zone. But they went and they made a name for themselves. They were there and they realised that all fronts lead to Zion. So I think six soldiers died, many were wounded. And from those men that came back to Egypt after the Gallipoli campaign, 120 then volunteered to, into the British army. And in 1917, Jabotinsky, who was still agitating for a Jewish legion, um, caught up with these 120 Zion Mule Corps men, and they became the foundations of what was really the Jewish legion. It was called the 38th Battalion Royal Fusiliers. And so this was the unit that came back with the British Army and actually was played a small part in the liberation of Palestine from the Turks. Um, the commander of that unit was, again, Patterson. He was the commander of the 38th Battalion. Another unit was formed called the 39th Battalion from Jewish volunteers from the United States of America who had to go to Canada to enlist because well, they had to join a British unit. And a man called David Ben-Gurion and another man called Yitzhak Ben-Sri, the first Prime Minister, second President of Israel, were two of those early volunteers into the 39th Battalion. And that battalion was commanded by a man called Eliezer Margolin, a Jewish man who was actually in Collie in Western Australia when he joined up, um, served alongside Monash in Gallipoli and was amongst the last hundred or so soldiers to leave Gallipoli. So these are little connections, but I'll finish up on this one, Neil, because mm -hmm. 10 minutes ago when I started on this story... We were <laughs> I've been wanting to let you go here. This is, it's, uh, it's very good for the detail of the history uh, for what we're talking about today. And the, John Patterson, later, when, he, you know, when the war was over, he uh, became very, very much involved in Jewish matters then. He wrote several books on the subject matter. Later went to the United States, and in the United States, and I think it was New York, but don't quote me on it, um, he became friends with a man called Ben Sion Netanyahu. There's the connection. Okay. Benjamin, um, Benjamin's father. And they became close friends. And later, the Netanyahu's had a, a several sons, three sons that I know of anyway, and one of those sons was named Jonathan or Yoni for short in Hebrew. And as you know, Yoni died in the Antebi raid. Well, Yoni Netanyahu, Jonathan Netanyahu, was named after John Patterson, the commander of the Zion Mule Corps. Wow. Okay. So we got around to it. After 10 minutes, I finally got you there. But I had there to is, give a better history. There is real time. connection, isn't there? Listen. Interesting connection. And incidentally, yep. John Patterson's bones were reinterred in Israel just a, a few months ago. Let me just bring you back to the misconception here that we Aussies often have. And I suspect with all this research that you've done and bringing to light uh, these big picture facts that sometimes we Aussies have missed uh, some of those things or we just haven't been exposed to them. And this is the idea that when we think of Gallipoli here in Australia, we think that all roads are leading to the Western Front. That's right. And of course, uh, we have lost, you know, many tens of thousands of soldiers there in the Western Front. And so there is, uh, you know, obviously those commemorations, very, very important. But, but what you're saying is the road from Gallipoli didn't lead to the Western Front. It actually led to uh, the area around Jerusalem there. And uh, the entire Middle East is transformed as a result of that journey. Entirely. Yeah, it probably would be wrong to say there was no road from Gallipoli to the Western Front because many of our soldiers did walk on a road that went from Gallipoli back to Egypt to the Western Front. But that's not a natural road. 
the natural road, after we left Gallipoli, we came back to Egypt, and then naturally it was to continue the fight against the Turks. Now, what we have to realise that the enemy we were fighting against in Gallipoli was primarily Turkish, okay? Don't forget there were many hundreds of thousands of Arab soldiers fought with the Turkish army during the First World War, and many of those would have also been at Gallipoli. But it was the basically the Turkish hierarchy that we were fighting against, uh, whereas in France and Belgium it was mainly the Germans. So we were involved in a conflict which began against the Turks at Gallipoli, and after the campaign ended in failure and beginning of 1916, when the troops were finally withdrawn from Cape Hellas in the, in the southern part, uh, we came back to Egypt and trained up to go to France. Yes, so most of our soldiers did go to France. That is true. But the natural conflict against Turkey continued eastward because we then had to protect the Suez Canal against an expected Turkish attack. So initially in 1916, there was a defensive conflict in the area of the Suez to defend the Suez Canals in the area of the Sinai, I should say. And that is what took place primarily in 1916. And there was a major battle at Romani. We stopped the Turks and began to pushing them, pushing them back to the border with Palestine and the Suez and the Sinai. And so that was the, the status quo, the conflict had begun against the Turks. Now, if I can just draw your allusion to one thing. We had the mighty British Empire involved here, as well as the French. Two great empires, and they both had their noses bloodied at Gallipoli. By who? A second-rate army, in their opinion, the Turks. Do you think that the British and the French are just going to sit there, particularly the British, and say, we just got defeated by a second-rate army, ha, 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 we'll just leave it? Of course not. You know, there had to be a recompense for that. So, they were looking for an opportunity of dealing a, a, a big blow against the Turks. And we already had, the British already had troops in Mesopotamia, British and Indian troops. So there was fighting going on there at the same time as there was fighting in Gallipoli. And so, without any shadow of doubt, the conflict was going to continue against Turkey. Uh, if it wasn't at Gallipoli, it was going to have to be somewhere else. And that somewhere else was 1916 in the Sinai. At the end of 1916, a new government came into power in Britain, led by a man called David Lloyd George and the foreign minister was Arthur Balfour. Lloyd George in particular was an Easterner. He saw the value of continuing the fight against the Turks, of defeating the Turks, knocking them out of the war, and so on and so forth. But he also was a big-picture sort of a man as well. He recognised the centrality and the vulnerability of the Suez Canal region. You see, what happened, Neil, is back in 1915, when the planning first began for taking Gallipoli, the Russians gave an ultimatum to the British and the French that once you, that it's the British and the French, have captured the Gallipoli area, the Dardanelles and the Constantinople, then thank you very much, you have to hand that region over to us, Russia. And so Britain had no choice. She had to comply with that Russian demand. So if we'd won at Gallipoli, that area would have been given over to the Russians. Now, at that time, Britain then began to realise, oi, we have a problem. If the Russians have the Dardanelles, then, and if the Turkish Empire falls, more than likely France will pick up the area of Cilicia, Syria and Palestine. So Britain then began to think, even before the Gallipoli campaign began, if the Turkish Empire falls, the Suez Canal region could be very vulnerable with both the Russians and the French ensconced in that area. So Britain already was thinking about the future um, status, you might say, of the Suez Canal region. 
So when David Lloyd George came into power at the end of 1916, he realised that the re that region was very, very strategically important for the British Empire, and he did not want to have or see any rival European power in that region. So he made a plan when he came into power, which straight away, we're capturing Palestine, we're capturing the province of Syria, we're going to defeat the Turks, and we're going to make sure that we're in a position at the end of the war to determine who was going to be in control of that strategic region on the east side of the Suez Canal. So he pressed the buttons in the beginning of 1917. It was into the land of Israel, into Palestine as it was then known as, uh, with the objective of taking Jerusalem. To get to Jerusalem, you had to go via Gaza, and we lost twice at Gaza. And then a new commander came in called Allenby, and Lloyd George said to Allenby, I want Jerusalem by Christmas of 1917. So that was the object, to get to Jerusalem. Okay, we had to go via Gaza. We got defeated twice at Gaza in March and April 1917. If we can't get to Jerusalem via Gaza, we have to find another route, and that route was via Beersheba. So plans began for a military campaign to Beersheba, or Beersheba, as we call it in Hebrew, but over here, Beersheba, because of somebody, see so many beer drinkers in Australia, they just put the <laughs> emphasis upon yes. beer and then Sheba. Yeah. So that's when the planning began for the, uh, the Battle of Beersheba. Now, let's step back a little bit. This is the, the military component. We're talking here about the most coveted piece of real estate in the entire land. It's covenanted. The land's been covenanted to the people of Israel, but it's coveted by everybody else. So the British are going to come in, Protestant power, potentially conquer the land. But do you think the rest of the world can allow a Protestant power to keep control over the Holy Land? No way, Jose. So Britain realised that. Britain realised she that none of her allies would actually allow her to have control over the land of Israel. So Britain had to come up with a plan that was going to fulfil her own strategic objectives and at the same time uh, appease all of her allies, which included not just France, but it was also Italy, and it was the the, uh, the Vatican, it was the United States, they wanted to make sure the United States wasn't put off by any British plans. So all those entities had to buy into whatever proposal the British government was going to put forward as to the future status of the land of Israel. And that's when the Zionist organisation came into the picture. They put forth a proposal um, whereby Britain would actually endorse the establishment of a Jewish national home in Palestine. That was July 1917. That proposal was submitted to the British. So the British government then had to begin to work out how they're going to implement this. And so you had two things happening at the same time here, Neil. You had the military component, mm -hmm. um, and we hadn't defeated the Turks at this stage. They'd beaten us in every major battle thus far, Gallipoli and now twice at Gaza. And you also had this political component as well. As things worked out in time, the military battle was going to climax at Beersheba, and that was scheduled to take place on the 31st of October 1917. And the political future, the political status, was also going to climax on the 31st of October 1917, when the British War Cabinet was actually going to meet and discuss this proposal by the Jewish people. Jewish nationalist um, Zionist movement, of a national home for the Jewish people in Palestine. So two things were going to happen 
on the same day, the 31st of October 1917. It's Neil with you on 2020. Our special guest this hour, Kelvin Crombie, author, documentary maker. We're talking about his new documentary, Gallipoli, The Road to Jerusalem, and uh, talking about uh, the documentary, of course, based on his book and some of the detail that's in there that enlarges our understanding of what it is to be Australian and uh, to hear about the uh, story of our Anzac forces a hundred years ago at Gallipoli and the road to Jerusalem, which really means the road to liberating Jerusalem and the uh, formation of the uh, Israeli state as we know it today. Uh, Kelvin, uh, quick, we're going to take a call in just a few moments, but the the uh, the actual documentary. It is going to be premiering here in Australia and uh, released tomorrow. Uh, this is a significant time for you. Uh, yes, it certainly is. Um, I've got to get it finished first. We're up until about one thirty last night trying to work on it. and Last-minute thing. Um, still got to get it done today so we can get some copies made tomorrow. Um, premier showing in a place called Collie in Western Australia tomorrow night, Friday, and then on Saturday, it's uh, up at the Flame Tree in Nambour in Queensland and then on the Gold Coast the day after and then uh, then Sydney Parliament House on the Monday and then over to New Zealand for places in four days and then back to Melbourne uh, on the 28th of uh, Saturday, next Saturday. And do you have some premiere dates uh, set too for mi- release in the Middle East? Is it, uh, is it going to be released over there? Uh, well, we're planning to try to have something in Jerusalem in April. I'll be sort of with a tour over there in April, and then, and then after that, there's uh, a few places in the UK and doing a, a two-week tour in the UK uh, as well. So, um, I think by the end of um, that period of time, I'll be ready just to have. Uh, a change of scenery, no more documentaries for a while. Okay. Uh, inviting listeners to be a part of our conversation today, and uh, we were talking quite in-depth uh, with a lot of uh, facts and figures and details, and really you've got to be able to talk about those to get uh, some sort of filling out of the big picture. We're talking about the big picture, uh, our soldiers, our Anzacs at Gallipoli, the road to Jerusalem. Our talkback line is open, one eight hundred three sixteen three sixteen. Let's hear from Trevor in Brisbane. Hello, Trevor. Welcome Along to 2020. Hello, uh, Neil, Kelvin. Mate, um, Kelvin, I'd just like to uh, commend you, uh, especially um, on listening to this today. Um, I watched um, uh, as I go to Anzac parades every year, and I, but I watched um, a documentary around that period, a year or two back, um, about the war, and a lot of that stuff came out, but not so much from the scriptural side of things like you have presented. Um, which is just staggering, and I'm really, um, you know, it's just fantastic to hear that and have really the perfect piece of all the information put together because the other documentaries didn't really put the Christian or scriptural side properly together. Um, so, so it's really fantastic to hear that. Um, and I was just getting, uh, when I was listening to the other guy, he was giving me some information so I could get hold of that book because I really do want to listen to it. As a matter of interest, I'd love to get a copy of this same conversation that you've had on radio today. And um, you'll be able to, Trevor, you'll be able myself. to access the podcast a little later today. But let's hear, let's hear from oh, Kelvin. Right. Kelvin, your thoughts on what Trevor's saying? Oh, Trevor, it's always encouraging to hear uh, a response like that, to be frank with you. I mean, I put so many... Um, hours into doing the research and then putting it together um, but it's not of no purpose for myself it's there to go out into the, the broader public so I do actually 
uh, get very encouraged to hear uh, a response like that. And I think the most important thing for us to keep in mind is God is the God over history. And I think sometimes as evangelical Christians, we try to perhaps prove too much the existence of God. I think we can actually have the tendency to take a scripture and sort of stretch it as far as it can go and a bit further than what it should go. Whereas if we just present the the details um, as best we can, stand back, and like it obviously has impacted you, like it's impacted me many times, you stand back and say, wow, no human being could have put that together. No human being could have had the intellect to be able to take all these different strands from different components and nations and empires and individuals and for something to actually come forth from it. And such with the restoration of modern Israel. It really is a miracle. But that's a miracle yeah. looking at it from a military, political, economic perspective. And it wasn't just something which the Jewish people or the Zionist organization did. God and his sovereignty and his grace, actually, he used so many different components to put that concept together so that nobody can actually say, we did it. The Jewish people can never say, we did it, because they didn't, because they could only do it with the assistance of Gentiles. Uh, and part of those Gentiles were Australian and New Zealand soldiers. And most of those Australian and New Zealand soldiers didn't go over to the Middle East in the First World War to bring about the restoration of Israel. 99.9% of them had, wasn't even on their wavelengths. A few Jewish soldiers, perhaps. And so it's by God's grace, and by God's grace alone. So for me personally, um, when I stand back from this picture and look at it, I just see God's abundant grace not by works or not by intellect it's just entirely by god's grace that all this has come together and in that there's australia and new zealand okay god knew what what he was doing when he brought the aboriginal people down here he knew what he was doing when he brought the the white people down here because in the fullness of time both primarily white but also some aboriginal people were involved in this whole process of the restoration and the redemption of israel Trevor from Brisbane, thank you so much for your input today here on 2020. Really appreciate you being part of our conversation. This is so, so current and so, so relevant for today, Kelvin, because when we talk about what our Anzacs achieved and as we talk about this Gallipoli campaign and then the broader Dardanelles campaign, we think of Gallipoli as the great loss uh, what you go on to say is that the Dardanelles campaign was a great success. Uh, it was a victory of the Dardanelles campaign. Uh, and you so, look at it in the bigger context, um, Neil, yes. Yes, and just to, to draw attention when I say this is so current, because today we're looking at the emergence of an Islamic state. Uh, But uh, I'm sure that uh, perhaps many a listener uh, who's tuning into our conversation today isn't aware that the Ottoman Empire was an Islamic state. And I think what we really, really need to keep in focus here, Neil, when you're talking about what's happening today, is the dark side of the global campaign. And the dark side wasn't what happened on the 25th of April 1915. The dark side is what happened or be, really began to happen on the 24th of April with the official beginning of the Armenian Genocide. Um, you cannot look at the Gallipoli campaign um, distinct from what happened the day before, began the day before. It's like a coin. Any coin is two sides. So on that coin, 
There is the 25th of April when we landed at Gallipoli. On the other side of the coin is the 24th of April and the official beginnings of the Armenian genocide. Um, because you cannot understand and look at one without the other. It, uh, just enlarge on that impossible. for us, Kelvin, because mm-hmm. the Armenian genocide, uh, many of us won't be very familiar with the number of lives lost in that genocide. Can you enlarge a little? Uh, how serious was that? Very serious, extremely serious. I mean, you're talking about a policy, and, uh, I mean, even though the Turkish authorities might try to say there was no official policy, um, there's no way that it could not have been um, because you don't have between one and one and a half million people of a particular nation, the Armenians, who are in the midst of the uh, of Turkey. You don't have one to one and a half million people being killed and massacred in a period of a few years without the officials being involved. Okay, it's impossible. And that's what happened. You had lowest figure 1 million up to 1.5 million Armenians were killed during that period of time. You had perhaps 100,000 Greeks, you had perhaps 200,000 if not more Assyrian Christians uh, were being killed within the Ottoman Turkish Empire at that time. And there are statements that are made by some Turkish leaders before the war began that there was a policy of Turkification um, to basically um, make Turkey much more Turkish and so that there'll be no room for these other national entities and groups within the Turkish Empire. Uh, and then that rolled out into actual effect during the war. Now, on the documentary, we've interviewed a lady called Baroness Caroline Cox from the House of Lords, who is actually an expert in this field. There are many people who know a lot about it, but Caroline is actively involved in it. And so she brings out some very, very poignant details about it. So the First World War, the Gallipoli campaign, provided the Turkish regime with an ideal opportunity to do something which they wanted to do for a while, which is basically to Turkify the entire region and to, in one way or another, subdue the minority groups. So if we had not continued uh, in pursuing the Turkish army as we did, if we had not continued that, if we just sort of stopped after Gallipoli, then there's a good chance, there is a good chance that the Turkish regime would have completed the destruction of the majority of the minority groups in their, in their entire empire. But thankfully, we were able to continue the campaign and were able to defeat the Turkish army before that uh, process had been completed. So there's a little connection, you might say, between then and now, because uh, what is ISIS trying to do now, it's in many ways, its philosophy is, is, is similar it's also trying to to get rid of many of the minority groups uh, in that or some of that same region. It just goes to show the value of understanding this history, this 100-year history since Gallipoli. This is 2020 with Neil Johnson, helping you make sense of life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision. Well, bringing you some big perspectives today and, uh, you know, I guess today you've got to listen a little more intently uh, for some of the details and how all of this connects together. We're talking about a hundred-year history, talking about our Anzacs at Gallipoli and the beginning of the Gallipoli campaign on the road to Jerusalem, the liberation of Jerusalem, the uh, what eventually led to the formation of the uh, new uh, state of Israel back in 1948. 
And, of course, uh, the reshaping of what happened in the Middle East uh, and those nations that exist there now that we perhaps have all grown up with thinking that they were always like that. They weren't always like that. Kelvin Crombie, historian, author, documentary maker, our, our guest, and we're talking about his book and his new DVD documentary called Gallipoli, The Road to Jerusalem. Kelvin, let, let's take another call before we go another moment further. John is in Melbourne. Hello, John. Welcome along to 2020. Uh, Neil, how are you? Very good to hear from you, John. What are your thoughts on what we're talking about? I was just going to ask, Calvin, um, with the latest trends at the moment, obviously with um, ISIS and, you know, the Muslim Brotherhood and all that, uh, 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 the question, I guess, was uh, they seem like they're taking a bit of road at the moment and it seems a bit frightening in a sense of, um, not for the Christian, but I guess for them, you know, people who don't believe in a sense of, um, you know, how dangerous this movement is, I, I think, and the fact that we've got them in the West and they're our citizens and they can turn on us any time and that they populate like rabbits and they're on the welfare system, milking the system. I think it's, I, I think our, we don't know what to do with them. John, I mean, let's, let's hear some thoughts from Kelvin. Uh, Kelvin, your thoughts on the, the modern IS uh, movement? Uh, according uh, what, to what, what you said at the end there, mate, we don't know what to do with them. That's a pretty, uh, that's a pretty honest question basically yeah what can you do with them it's, it's a very difficult one it really is a difficult one um my question my answer basically to that is um well i suppose i can say i don't really have an answer to be frank with you yep, because yep. it's it's a very insidious movement um <clears throat> if you have an ideology that has a certain attitude towards those who don't adhere to that ideology um, then there are just no boundaries, basically. If you think that uh, your ideology, which is uh, radical Islam, um, is the be-all and end-all and everything else is secondary to that and uh, whatever else and, um, has to be destroyed, you might say, then that's what you will set your mind to do. And that is what is happening. Uh, that's been happening in the, uh, the Middle East and areas where radical Islam has had a hold for centuries. Um, but it can also happen right here. If people have no regard at all for the sanctity of life, they have no regard at all for the concept of a liberal democracy, basically, if they see that everything really ultimately has to come under the control of radical Islam, then what can you do to stop that? Um, there's prayer, and you can never undervalue the importance of prayer, to pray for those that are in security situations that they can really pick up on these things and stop attacks before they happen. Now, but just look at, for instance, how this has affected Israel. I mean, we in the West get affected when a little incident happens. Uh, what happened in Sydney a few uh, months ago was uh, an incident which was big for Sydney, but little in the context of, let's say, Israel. that has been facing these matters for years and years and years. And so I think Australia is at a point now where it has to sort of stand up and say, OK, let's... Um, forge closer links with the very nation that above any other nation has had to confront this ideology, not just a few days of the year, but 365 days of the year, and that is Israel. And I think it's important for, you know, at this time time for Australians and, and New Zealanders and others to stand up and take note of the fact that um, we actually have something in common uh, with Israel at, at this stage, because Israel's been confronted by this ideology now for 60-plus years and has managed to survive, which is a miracle. 
um, let's get right behind her. Let's learn from, from Israel. Let's forge closer links with her. Yeah, learning from Israel, learning from history. And uh, John from Melbourne, thank you so much for your uh, contribution to our conversation here today on 2020. Let's come back to the documentary, Kelvin. Uh, when people see this documentary, what are they likely to, uh, to, to see? What sort of things have you got? I know you were in about 11 countries doing filming. We were in 11 countries doing filming. Um, the, my Cameron, Ivan Green, who went with me, probably thought, uh, great, I'll see 11 countries going with this bloke, Kelvin. Um, what we did see is a lot of airports yeah. because many times we were sort of in, get our shot, we were out again. But I just felt that if you're going to cover places, give the background, we give a lot of background, Neil. Uh, to be quite, quite frank with you, there's not a huge amount about the actual Gallipoli campaign because there's a lot of documentaries and books out there on it. I'm trying to give uh, some other perspectives, background perspectives. For instance, how did we get there? What in Dickens' name were we doing there? Um, and uh, who are we, basically? Why were we, Australia and New Zealand, even there? So all that's interconnected. It's interconnected with the old trade routes. A lot of trade and commerce and geopolitics and all this background. So what I've endeavoured to do is to really go back and scratch under the surface to see... Um, how these little interconnecting strands came together, whereby two young nations ended up there in the Dardanelles. So we've looked at the old trade routes we've gone to, for instance, to Portugal, to where Prince Henry the Navigator began the whole concept of sending out ships to the Far East. And by sending out ships from Europe to the Far East, which is India and Indonesia, the whole idea was to um, bypass the Middle East, because the Turks had control of the Middle East and the prices of the spices were so high, the Europeans just said we need to find the source of those spices. So when the Portuguese and the Dutch and the British sent their ships out to India and the Dutch East Indies, etc., then the Middle East dropped off the radar screen. And therefore, as a result of that, we came onto the radar screen. Australia and New Zealand were founded because Europe was forced into that situation. So we look at those, that concept. We look at the importance of Islam. We have an expert on Islam called uh, Dr. Mark Dury uh, from Melbourne, who is a really, really great communicator. And so I've asked Mark, for instance, to give an analysis of Islam at different historical periods. And so we follow that through. We can see the influence of Islam through the Arabs and through the Turks in the Middle East. So we look at that as well. And uh, we look at some other background concepts, geopolitics, very, very important to look at the geopolitical significance. And then, of course, we look at how that region came back onto the radar screen with Napoleon's invasion in 1798. And his whole purpose was to defeat the British in India. And Britain didn't want that. And so that's when that region came back onto the radar screen. And that's why the region of Suez became important. And then... From that, you begin to see how it just slowly, slowly developed to a point in time when the First World War came along and you have a conflict, Turkey against Britain, which is very unusual, you see, because for about over 100 years, Britain's policy had been to maintain a close relationship with Turkey, and suddenly it was gone. And why did it go? Because of Germany. So we look at Germany. So we've gone to Germany. We've done some filming in the Brandenburg Gate, for instance, in, in Germany to see the involvement of the Germans in this. And the Germans came in began to develop uh, an economic empire in that region and Turkey said yeah we like this so they gravitated towards Germany and away from Britain and so when the First World War begins voila there you go.
Kelvin, it's interesting when we talk about documentaries, as you say, there are a lot of good documentaries around that do tell the story of the Gallipoli campaign, uh, but there's not as much around that actually gives you the insight that you're talking about, uh, this deep uh, spiritual insight into how history began to shape as a result of those uh, involvements there at Gallipoli. Well, I'm not saying um, that there aren't other good documentaries out there, Neil. There may very well be. But this is the contribution that I felt led to give at this time, to give the average Australian and New Zealander uh, perhaps another perspective as to the background to it all, and more so, in a sense, what happened afterwards. Okay, we were there. We fought. We lost men. But was it a waste? Was it always wasted men? Did they just go across there and fight for the British and die for nothing? And I'm basically trying to say, well, actually, something positive came out of it. Well, if you look at France, mate, in France and Belgium, a lot of men died. And at the end of the war, the boundaries didn't change a huge amount. Not anything really that tangible happened in Europe, in a sense, especially in France, Belgium, Germany area. But in the Middle East, as a result of our fighting there, this mega big empire called the Turkish Empire fell. Mm. And as a result of it falling, you actually had five independent Arab countries coming into being, which weren't there before. Most people don't realize it. Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, um, uh, Syria, if I didn't say Syria, and of course Saudi Arabia. They weren't in existence before. Kelvin, let me just interrupt for a moment. Uh, Kelvin, we'll just take one more call, and it'll have to be very quick. Uh, Let's hear from Bruce in Wondai in Queensland. Hello, Bruce. Hello, how are you? Very good, Bruce. You'll need to be very quick. Okay, just to, just a query. Uh, it seems to be a little known fact. There was a couple of Turks in 1914-15 in Broken Hill um, under the title of a caliphate and uh, letters from Turkey attacked the train and killed several people. They ended up being killed themselves. But uh, an interesting fact that uh, I found on the internet on that one was that because Germany and Turkey were aligned in the First World War, the locals didn't retaliate against the Islamic attack, even though that's what it was. They retaliated by burning down the German club in Broken Hill. I did hear that, Bruce. Uh, Were you aware of that story at all, Kelvin? No, no, no. Okay, well, interesting one. Uh, talking about uh, basically the uh, terror attack on Australian mm. soil a hundred years ago. Well, Bruce, Very uh, Bruce, Very thank you so much for your input today. I appreciate your sharing that detail with us because uh, you know these things are all interconnected in some way. Uh, now we've only got about a minute and a half now, up can to I news. Just finish yep. off one little thing. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, when I'm talking about the end of the war and the defeat of the Turkish Empire. It's important for us to realise that, first of all, by doing that, we help save minority groups. Secondly, we actually help provide an opportunity for these Arab nations to come into existence, as well as the Jewish nation. And there was a peace conference in a place called San Remo in Italy. And we went there as well on our documentary. And we went to the place where the peace conference took place. And the actual vote that was taken to partition the former Turkish areas in the Middle East into these nations. And the actual vote was taken for the future development of Palestine into a Jewish state. That vote was taken on the 25th of April, 1920. So five years to the day after the land campaign began at Gallipoli, which we basically see as forging the Australian and New Zealand national identities, on the same day five years later, a vote was taken, which really was 
the Magna Carta for the future Jewish state of Israel. Kelvin, we're going to have to get people to actually get a hold of the book or the DVD to get more of the detail on that because we've run out of time. I'll just tell people that you'll be able to get a hold of this new DVD through ucbdirect.com.au and uh, you could also uh, simply Google Kelvin Crombie and uh, talk about uh, you know Googling Gallipoli, the road to Jerusalem, get some more detail about that too. Kelvin Crombie, thank you so much for your input today. Just a pleasure having you again as a guest on 2020. If they go to Heritage Resources, www.heritageresources, they'll probably get more than if they go to my name. Like what you've just heard? There's more great podcasts. Or you can listen to us live at vision.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener supported. Your donation of any amount will help us continue connecting faith to life. Learn more or donate today at vision.org.au.